This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, yours is a very famous campus, and I've had friends here also before. And this is a very famous lecture, so I'm really delighted uh, to, be, to have been invited to, to speak about this. Um, the topic I've chosen is something very, very topical. Uh, it is um, really about poverty and income distribution. Income distribution or inequality, as we call it, is big, has been around for quite a while now. Uh, and uh, a lot of people have written about it. Mr. Piketty is a Frenchman, in case you don't know. Uh, and you're lucky that I'm going to be speaking about him rather than speaking to you himself because his English is very French. And, uh, I, you know, I've often been put in the position of translating for audiences what the speaker has said. Like one famous instance was since I was also advisor to the GATT, which is General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade which is the international body looking after multilateral trade. And the director general was from New Zealand, a man called Michael Moore, which is a frequently used name in, by all kinds of people. Uh, and he used to talk in very fast, walk you know, with, uh, with shoes making a lot of noise. Uh, and then he had a very New Zealand accent. So often people would come and ask me, what did he say? <laughs> particularly the members of the press, and I would say, I can only tell you what I think he said, because that's the best one can do. But I think it's basically, Mr. Piketty is, is really the, the, the face of in inequality, because his big fat book uh, of about 800 pages uh, talks about uh, inequality. He's both measured it and then has a great deal of speculation about what is going to happen to inequality, which actually, from a strictly uh, analytical point of view, requires a model to be able to predict what's going to happen. Uh, you look through all the 800 pages or such, it's very difficult to find anything, and it's very easy to construct models, uh, particularly you know, from the old days. Uh, econ economists have been interested in what happens to income distribution, particularly in open economies, when you open up the colonies and so on and so forth. So the, you know, when I was your age, I <laughs> we were forced to, to learn all that. So it's, it's, it's an old question, but I, as I read Piketty, I didn't really find anything which really gave me a, a handle on, you know, on the analytical models with which you can predict, because you can always say this will happen or that will happen. And you don't want to learn that at a university, you want to learn you know, to build a, a solid analytical argument and he probably has something in French, I have no idea, but certainly not, uh, it's not in the book. And the book is largely preoccupied uh, with what happens to income distribution in the sense of wealth and income, both, in terms of the top 1%. So now you'll recognize that uh, as essentially the kind of focus that people brought after the Occupy movement uh, some of you may have been part of it, uh, uh, unless you had better things to do, uh, which I'm sure you do, uh, in, 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 in New York. Uh, and that's where they you know, congregated. In, in London, there were um, Occupy movements and so on. But that was really focused on the rich, 
meaning the better off people. Uh, what, the, what I'm talking about is that when it comes to really talking about poverty, uh, then we are shifting the focus away from focus on the rich to focus on the poor. Uh, now, of course, as those of you who are Democrats or following the, the, what's going on right now, uh, the Democratic Party itself is kind of, you know, often it says we're for the middle class. Sometimes they'll lapse into saying we're for the poor. Uh, it's not clear what, what in fact people really worry about in this country uh, because politically the middle class is the one, but middle class is in the middle. It's not the really poor, okay? So there is a little tension there about you know, what we are talking about when it comes to poverty. In my opinion, poverty is really going right to the bottom. And therefore, while I recognize that we, I'm a Democrat, that we have to talk about the middle class in order to win the elections, uh, that doesn't excite me as much as really doing something for the really poor people at the bottom of the income distribution. But as I said, I'm, I'm not into politics. And I suppose if I was in the position of a democratic contender, I would have to probably talk in the same way. So we have to be a little bit more indulgent. But anyway, so the focus then of one's discussion can be either worrying about the rich, which the Occupy movement was doing, like here are these filthy, stinking characters, uh, almost implying that we should take them to Florida, put them above the sinkholes, you know, let them go down and then fire our 21-gun salute and celebrate the whole event. Uh, I mean, that's one approach, okay? I mean, to, <laughs> it doesn't interest me from the way I said, put it, right? <laughs> but then there is a, the approach where we worry about the people at the very bottom. And that is something where the Pope comes in. Because the Pope Francis, I mean the current Pope, um, he is refocusing us, in my view, away from worrying about the rich and so on. Though I want to bring in the rich later on into my argument. But not focusing on that, because that reflects uh, more or less our more base values or less noble values, like resentment, jealousy, uh, and so on, or, or you know, what Shakespeare's, you know, uh, Iago calls the jealousy, the green-eyed monster, and so on. That's not what I'm, you know, what really animates many of us. We are worried about bringing poor people above the poverty line to give them a decent shot at life, and so on and so forth, right? And so that is what I like about the Pope. This is what, when I started out economics at your age, uh, and, and I'm 80 years old, so I'm talking about 60 years ago, okay? Uh, that time, I was coming from India and had gone to Cambridge, England to study. Uh, and I was interested in economics because basically economics was about change, how to bring about change. Uh, I was also interested in social anthropology, etc. But that was a very static thing, how everything fitted into everything else. So it was really justifying all the different institutions you could come up I'm talking of social anthropology in those days. Today it's a more progressive discipline, which is for change. So I was interested in what to do about poverty, because coming from a country like India in those days, uh, you saw poverty everywhere, right? You didn't have to measure it. I mean, it's just an economist affectation that you have to measure something before you can actually do something about it. I mean, when you have so much of it, 
Go and do something about it. Think of some bright ways in which you can actually affect it. And it's true, at some level, <laughs> you do want to measure it to see if you're actually making a difference. But that's a more of a boutique kind of thing. Uh, if you see poverty diminishing, you're most likely to be able to see it, even if you can't measure the extent to which you're doing it. So that was my interest. And then English economics was very much into that, into really focusing on poverty. And coming from India also, the Indian leaders uh, from, the, from the time of the Second World War and independence were into, uh, into reducing poverty. That was continuously the refrain. And so we would take a poverty line and then look at you know, how many people were below it and see what we could do to bring more people up from, from, from below. So that was the, and that to me, um, putting my own moral values before you, uh, was the same as the Pope, was really about bringing people into mainstream and bringing them into a, a decent life, decent economic life. Of course, that doesn't guarantee you happiness and so on and so forth, but that's a different, uh, it's not for this lecture, right? <laughs> that's what, something in moral philosophy or something. Some. Or for you to determine on your own. So that is what the, uh, the Pope was actually now I was particularly excited because with all the focus on, on Occupy movement, on the rich, I thought we were forgetting what was the purpose of economic you know, development, which was to really help the poor. And so that, to me, so I applauded the Pope. Of course, I went to a Catholic school in Bombay, so I'm already uh, brainwashed, maybe. Uh, the, we, we used to have our wits about us, you know, I remember, I, I know this is a Catholic college, or, uh, at least in terms of its origin, if not its profession. Uh, and, you know, we used to look at the, you know, somebody asked us, you know, was the school a strict one? And uh, I remember, you know, one wit among us saying, oh yes, they even have got a guy nailed to the wall. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you have to be very careful what you say and do. Uh, and so th this is something where, you know, I have fond memories of the school, so I was going to suggest also that uh, I'm going to bring that to bear on the issue, but I, I like the Pope, uh, and in India, the Christians are such a small minority. The smaller the minority, the more it's love, because it's less of a threat. And so even though right now, a few people have thrown some stones at some churches and so on, which any crazy guy can do in a country of 1.3 billion people. Uh, basically, it's a, it's, a, it's a small, tiny minority which is much loved, and people go to church, you know, even if they're not, because there's nothing like a substitute for Bach uh, or Handel, you know, it's a, there's wonderful church music and so on. So there's a great deal of uh, secularism, respect to other views and so on, uh, other religions which we have in the system. So I, it seems to me that when the Pope said something like this, it brought, you know, the system back away from focusing on the rich to really empathy for the poor, even though it was not news to us. And, you know, a lot of people have done it in, for centuries in India also. I won't bore you with that. So for, for Indians, it was no sweat. Okay, and it was really a, a matter of affirmation of something which we were trying to do ever since independence. Uh, uh, and so I think 
That part I liked. What I, the Pope, the other thing which I liked about the Pope also on poverty uh, was that he himself moved out from the palace or, you know, where, where all those funny guys with spears and, you know, probably stand, uh, and went into the, you know, the more modest uh, lodgings or, you know, away from it. So he was practicing what he was preaching. Like, he was for the poor, and he'd like a good Jesuit, he was also for the, you know, he was, he was coherent, intellectually, morally coherent. And that part also was, when you look at public life today, that coherence is not <laughs> that easy to come by. People will often have views which they express on public policy, and then they do exactly the opposite. Uh, for their own children and so on and so forth, and for themselves. I, you know, I should not sit in judgment, but it is something which I'm saying, by contrast, the Pope puts his own life where his mouth is, you know, where he's preaching. And, you know, I could give you lots of examples, like you know, politicians who are against vouchers and send their own children to, you know, <coughs> public schools. Uh, even someone I admire, like Al Gore, is heavily invested in um, uh, in developing uh, intellectual property on, on, on climate change. At the same time, you know, it, it came out that he was actually running a swimming pool in his home, which obviously isn't very good for carbon emissions. Uh, these are minor things in my view, but they're, they're, it's not what the Pope would ever do. Because Pope is morally and intellectually coherent. And in, in public life, you don't come across it too often. You could draw examples, I, I could bore you to death with lots of examples. So that part I loved. You see, first is refocus on the poor, to the fact that in his private life, in his own life, he's actually practicing what he is preaching. So all, you know, kudos. Uh, I could become a Catholic almost, you know. Uh, <laughs> and I'll come back to that a little bit later um, about, um, you know, what this signifies. But there's one thing that he doesn't have. And that is because, and that's what I'm going to concentrate on a little bit before getting on to Mr. Piketty, which is on income, you know, on riches and on how much the rich are getting, how that borders on what I'm saying now. So I want to do Piketty in, in relation to poverty, all right, and the focus on the poor from a particular specific point of view. Does the fact that we have lots of rich people, does it help us help the poor people more, or does it hurt us from hurting them? So, so I want to put that focus on Piketty, okay? Because you can approach income distribution from God knows how many points of view, but you have to have a focus. And that's one thing I hope you're learning, that whenever you approach an issue, be clear what exactly your question is. Otherwise, you'll be all over the place. Now, the Pope, I say, before he became infallible, which is what a Pope is supposed to be, right? I know that much doctrine. Now, before he became infallible, of course he was fallible, right? Figures. When he was fallible, he was learning about, in, you know, about poverty. 
right? And how to do something about it, because that's what the Jesuits are good at. They're intellectual also. So what did he do? He unfortunately learned the economics of reducing poverty in Argentina, of all places. Now, if you're an Argentinian and you're into Peronistic, those of you who haven't read, seen uh, Evita Peron's movie, uh, go ahead and do it. Yeah. Uh, and if you're earning a little research income, you can even charge it to your, as a deductible expense. You know, movies are deductible expenses if they bear on your research. So look at Evita Peron. She's a, it's a very good movie. It tells you about how Argentina was undermined. So I'm not talking about the current situation, because that would bring me into current politics with Mrs. Kirshner and so on. I don't want to do that. Uh, but you go and look back at what Peronism achieved, which was to reduce Argentina from among the front ranks of the rich countries to really uh, poor countries. And a lot of it was policies which actually the Pope is buying into. So the Pope first doesn't realize that we have done a lot on poverty, that the whole post-war history of trying to do something about poverty has led to enormous results. So first he's got to recognize <laughs> that in fact, we, have, we know something more than we used to, right in, in the 40s and 50s. And today we know more. And I'm going to tell you what do we know more, so you shouldn't have to take my word for it. So there's been a big impact, and we know something more about it. And third, Peronistic economics, which is what tends to get into the Vatican encyclicals and so on, and certainly into the, what the Pope says from time to time, uh, though not with such passion, but you know, he does say it. Uh, that is where we need to worry. First, he's got to recognize that what he believes in by way of economic policy is exactly the wrong thing to pursue, unless he wants to increase poverty rather than reduce it. I mean, if he wants to increase poverty, be an Argentinian, you know, without doubt. Uh, if you want to reduce poverty, forget about all this and write a new encyclical. And so what I'm going to suggest is, since I went to a Catholic school, uh, that maybe I and the Pope should collaborate on writing a new encyclical, <laughs> which takes into account all that we know about reducing poverty. That's only half a joke. But of course, he might invite me, who knows? Uh, but if he did, I would, I would be glad to do it. Okay, so now that is what I want to come to, okay? Which is that correct focus, moral coherence, all of that the Pope has, but the Pope is weak given his background uh, on. And in, in fact, in my research, I, you might be amused to know that in my research, I also found that he had been a bouncer in his youth. You know what a bouncer is, right? I hope you haven't encountered one. <laughs> but but the, I'm told the archbishops today are, 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 are encountering a, a bouncer in the Pope because the Pope is kicking them around and getting them into shape <laughs> to do to some real good. Rather, <laughs> and so, um, so, you know, research can be very amusing and very entertaining, all right? So, so the Pope is into, in, um, into this. Okay, now, so what is it that we do know about how poverty has diminished? I won't bore you with numbers, you know, any, you can pick them up anywhere, but I'll, I'll leave some manuscript behind. 
if poverty has gone down, what are the policies which have really brought this about, right? Because many countries have tried it, and there are at least two countries which have had big impact and which specialize in poverty. One is China, of course, and China is, of course, at a slightly different trajectory. But the other is my own country of origin, namely India. And in India, you have a big impact on poverty uh, over the years. And so that is that the poverty is really diminished in a very big way. Uh, so what did we do right? What did we learn that was really important? So that's what I want to come to now, all right, in terms of the, what do we know about it? Now, of course, poverty has declined, not just in these two countries, because these are two gigantic countries, what, 1.7 billion and 1.3 billion. That's about half the, more than half the country's, uh, you know, size, I mean, population size, and it, a lot of poverty in these countries. So if we've really managed to impact on that, that's already uh, great stuff. Now, you, what I'm going to say doesn't apply to countries which have enormous riches. Like if you say, does it apply to Saudi Arabia? Those guys have, you know, money crawling out of their ears, right? And now going into Yemen and God knows where, and you know, into Wahhabi doctrines, and that's a different ball game, right? I'm interested in countries like Indonesia, India, China, um, Brazil, South Africa, uh, and so on, where the bulk of the poor people are, and where really making a difference would make a difference. Uh, and what, have, what do we know about those countries to try and, you know, reducing poverty in a very big way? So that's really the, the thing before us, right? Now, what we can say about reducing poverty, so let me go down step by step. Uh, into different types of uh, policies which one can do. What about international trade, which is being discussed by um, Senator Schumer um, and you know people like that on the trade policy uh, fast track authority uh, in, in the Senate today and maybe tomorrow as well. So do we want an open system? Do we want more trade, more, more openness to trade? Or is it a bad thing like many unions fear in this country? Now, unfortunately, as I, um, a lot of unions are scared uh, of international trade and the effect on workers' wages. And you see that in the popular opposition by unions, uh, some in, in Europe as well, but mostly in our country, where people are really, the unions are not on board as far as the expansion of trade is concerned. And that's one thing which we can pursue and which you need to, to think about. But that is right now before the Senate. And so is openness a good thing? So we can divide it into two things. First, what is, the, or three things. One, the last one being, does it affect you, you know, labor badly, even if it increases the size of the pie? But the first, question, first two questions are, does openness increase the size of the pie? And two, is increasing the size of the pie generally good for a country, right? Does growth lead to more impact generally, and particularly for the poor, for which one can add some more? So that is the question to ask. And there the answer is, I think unequivocally, uh, that trade openness, increased openness does help in a big way. So that's two steps, as I said. 
One is, does it lead to greater growth? And two, does greater growth affect poverty? Okay, in two steps. So first step, does it, does it lead to incremental growth? Uh, and there's, there's plenty of evidence now. One of my colleagues has done uh, an analysis of as many countries as you can get data for, for the post-war period. And he shows actually the greater growth of exports of international trade does, is associated with greater growth. And where you have less export orientation or less export performance, you also get you know, a, a lower performance on the growth rate. Now, of course, this, these are associations. And you could easily say, if you don't want to agree with me or with him, that really the causation goes the other way. That namely, greater uh, growth leads to greater export performance. Uh, and it's not the first way around. Now, this is something what we call in economics an identification problem. And I'll explain it to you very simply by saying, Think of a country, and, and you know, it's about a specific country, but I dare not mention it. Uh, but you'll be able to deduce it, I think, more or less. And it is about where the women are bad cooks and the men are bad lovers. And the question is, what is causing what? I mean, this is like, you know, I mean, this is an identifying what is a relationship. Uh, are the women punishing bad lovers or are the men punishing bad cooks? So, so this is the an ID problem. And the same thing applies to, to any identification problem, disentangling, disentangling supply from demand, and so on and so forth. What you have is a situation, but it's very hard to think of cases where growth leads to more trade rather than trade leads to more growth. So detailed studies also collaborate, uh, corroborate this particular thing. Now, if you take that into account, then we can say, at least on the first dimension, on the first argument, that trade does lead to greater growth. Now, how does greater growth help? And I have a whole book on that uh, called Why Growth Matters um, with Public Affairs, which those of you who are studying uh, economics may want to take a look at. And the argument there is simply that if you have greater growth, it helps in two ways. One is greater growth means that for countries with large populations, lots of poverty, and so on, by growing more rapidly and creating more jobs, you manage to pull people up. So it's not a trickle-down process, because trickle-down suggests like you know, you're a follower of Mrs. Thatcher or Ron Reagan or something, or some conservative group, uh, where you are, you know, the Earl of Nottingham eating at a table, leg of lamb and venison, and then somehow something trickles down to the serfs and the dogs below in the lithograph. Now that is a kind of, you know, it's a terrible image to have. But that's not what we, when we were looking at growth, we wanted to talk about. We wanted to talk about basically how, by creating more jobs, you would pull, and you know, that may require a whole lot of radical measures uh, in order to accelerate the growth process, doesn't have you know libertarian approach is not necessarily compatible with that. Uh, and when you do that, you pull people up into gainful employment. So the one phrase which I've used, which is now commonly used, is that instead of calling it the trickle-down strategy, 
you call it the pull-up strategy. You're pulling up people above the poverty line by creating jobs and you know, giving them opportunities. And this also works for social issues, which we were talking about, uh, the, the, the chair was talking about. Namely, say you pass a law, put it on the books in, in New Delhi, which is our capital in India, saying we, you know, we, women can get a divorce from unpleasant husbands, okay? That's just something on the books. But for that law to take effect, you also need the ability of the woman to be able to get away and earn a living by herself, which usually is not possible if, this, if her in-laws refuse to help her on that, and as they will, and if her parents won't take her back. So that, but those things really matter, but as soon as she can do her own thing, that law will acquire teeth. So law is not enough. You have to have growth as a facilitator of social change as well. And so I can give you lots of examples of that, but I won't bore you with that. Uh, they are in several of my books. The second thing, of course, is that uh, when you have growth, what happens to your revenues? At any given tax rate, you earn more money, right? You collect more money. So what do you do with that money, right? And that's a very important thing to, to think about, because when you take that money, uh, or when you get that in the, revenue, in the treasury or the finance ministers, then that is available for social spending on the poor, on the marginalized groups and so on. But this is only a necessary condition. It's not a sufficient condition. Because people in Delhi might still spend it on opening up Swiss bank accounts or in Miami or in New York or whatever. So we need an additional argument, which and there I say it is the fact that India was a democracy which made a lot of difference. Because a democracy, a liberal democracy, means that people from below, as they aspirations are aroused by growth and by the fact that they see changes possible, they will then be able to use either multiple uh, you know, uh, agencies like, you know, like unions, uh, you will also be able to use an independent press, uh, you will be able to use uh, the fact that there are different political parties, the fact that you've got NGOs, all of these elements of what we call a liberal democracy, those of you studying political science will know what I mean, those can then be used to translate economic aspirations aroused by the growth process into politically effective demand. So you see actually that a country like India, which is a liberal democracy, people turn to using the increasing revenues for doing social spending. Whereas you take the uh, countries of Southeast Asia, uh, Hong Kong, S Singapore, uh, Taiwan, etc. These were authoritarian countries. So there was a whole issue of the economists, London economists, which showed that these countries were lagging behind. And they were only finally turning to what they call the welfare state, which means spending money on education, on healthcare, etc. So that is where the democratic framework comes in, in translating a necessary into a sufficient condition. Supposing you try and do that and, 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 uh, and move, take, 
go, go to China and my, you know, with, uh, I'm just going to take one tiny past part of the Chinese situation. You, you, you want to go and change the system, right? And you want to change, have more spending on, on schools and healthcare and so on. So what, what option do you have? You can't elect a new government. You don't have an independent press, really. So what do you do? You go in, into the streets, bang pots and pans, right? Which is called social disruption in the literature. So what happens to you when you do that? Very likely you'll be never heard from again. You'll wind up in outer Mongolia or somewhere. And so this uh, free press also is important, right? So basically what I want to emphasize is that politics is at the heart of translating increased revenues into effective social spending. You cannot do it without that. And so I'm a great believer in democracy uh, in, that, in that way. So this is a sort of the mix that you have uh, in terms of openness to trade and, and, and the result on, on, on growth uh, and how growth th therefore affects um, the, the outcome in terms of being able to say that poverty will be reduced because all of these me mechanisms reduce poverty first directly by pull-up process and secondly by enabling you to give it another blow on poverty because the incomes can be, the revenues can be spent on social spending. If you just say, I want social spending, what does it mean? Nothing, right? Where, where, where are we going to get the monies from? God is asleep up there. He's not interested in sending you manna from heaven. You, Uncle Sam also is a very busy financing wars and so on in the rest of the world. They don't have money to spend on, on social spending elsewhere. I mean, yeah, a little may come through, but that's not the, so there's nobody except yourself. So you have to grow, grow your resources and then spend it. And that gives you a second blow. So there are two, eff two effects of growth on poverty. And, we, and growth being brought about by things like opening to trade, uh, same thing applies to, uh, to direct foreign investment. There's a lot of research now on how direct foreign investment, meaning what you young people call multinationals and what sometimes are called transnationals, because that's such as transgression, Freudian style, you know, which is a negative way of thinking about it. Uh, if you say multinationals, it sounds cosmopolitan, you know, and so on. So words do matter, as George Orwell pointed out to us. So take your pick. But either way, today, people do not really think that direct foreign investment is a bad thing. The world is competing to get more and more resources for foreign investment. Uh, the people who oppose it are still stuck in an old mode. But what we do need to do is to make sure that the rights of multinationals are not the only thing we look at. We also look at the rights of the host countries and that is something which the OECD code didn't have. Uh, and we also look at the obligations of the multinationals, which is where the uh, corporate social responsibility comes in. That you have an obligation to do something good other than just creating jobs. Because Milton Friedman would say, oh, but we are doing enough because you know, we are, you know, we are doing the, we are creating jobs. So we don't need to do anything more, but people don't buy into that today. Corporations are, as the Supreme Court said, they're people. As people, they have obligations, and that obligation consists of 
doing some CSR and so on. So, so we can put that into this framework, but with these appropriate qualifications about how to design the institutional structure to, to make, make this sort of thing possible. So I, I think this is the, the main lesson that we have. Um, uh, one more thing, and this is something that's coming up again in relation to the transatlantic initiative in particular, because we, the Americans, have a very different attitude to risk. Uh, I'm an American since, since 91, okay? Americans do look like me, I'm afraid, sometimes. Uh, <laughs> foreigners usually don't understand that. <laughs> they find it, you know, a polyglot or something. But since 91, as I said, you know, Americans, you know, we Americans have actually gone into uh, essentially this, uh, this kind of approach, namely that we want to be able to uh, essentially uh, bring about change uh, through, uh, sorry, I thought you were signaling something to me. Um, on, on poverty reduction uh, by undertaking a variety of measures like, including say immigration. Uh, immigration is something again coming up uh, and immigration is something which enables us to disseminate uh, in effect uh, benefits from our growth process to people coming in from outside. So an openness also transmits uh, this to, to foreigners. When it comes to skilled migration like people like us, uh, there's again a big debate in, in the country. But on the other hand, this is something again which is mutually beneficial. So again, we have a relatively open system compared to many other countries. Uh, and in fact, there's competition for skilled people today. Uh, and so that's another thing where we are opening up the system. Unskilled immigration, we are more open to doing something internationally uh, for people uh, than most other countries. Uh, the reason being, of course, that we are a country of immigrants. And people will take from international trade, from migration, uh, from uh, you know, patent rights and so on, all from a variety of mechanisms by which you may integrate yourself into the world economy and they move away. I mean, they can use any variety of combination of these policies. So I think this is the, basically what the, we need to do is to look into a variety of ways in which we are able to spread the, or reduce poverty uh, and the specific mix will depend on the, on the, on the country in, in question. Like you take Jamaica, for instance. Why is it benefiting from uh, globalization? It isn't getting much foreign investment, okay? But it is next to us. So you see a variety of pe people like Orlando Peterson uh, at, at Harvard. You see General Powell, all, all sorts of people uh, coming in and benefiting from the proximity to us, all right? So they're able to use international trade, or rather international migration is a way to do it. So as long as we keep our immigration markets open, we are also spreading uh, the possibility of helping people uh, around the world. So, so I think the, 
each country will have a different mix of possibilities. Everybody is not going to have the same thing. Some countries may simply be too small to be able to benefit from in international trade coming in and so on. So I think the last one is, as I said, the, uh, which I wanted to talk about, was the, this whole question of risk taking, which I, uh, I could spend a, you know, five minutes more on. And international trade, uh, or rather uh, risk taking, Americans are into ri taking risk. I mean, they don't play uh, chess. They play drafts. I'll do something which is immediately beneficial, okay? If that creates problems, I'll go at it again and do another technical change. So you have a situation where, I, uh, in one of my books, I point out how on, on, uh, on GM foods, everybody knows about GM foods, right? It's not General Motors, it's just genetically modified foods, okay? Uh, when you have those, what happens? We worry, do we? No, because the Europeans worry that these are Frankenstein foods. That's what they're called. You remember Frankenstein who walks like that? Okay, so this one is going to kill you, right? He's going to get you in your bed. Uh, so the Europeans think of this as Frankenstein foods. That's the phrase used. We don't think of it that way. I saw, I mean, in one of my books, I have a New Yorker cartoon where there's a, an American sitting at a, 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 a at dinner, and he calls the waiter and says, this broccoli doesn't taste good. Uh, would you have it genetically modified? So that's our approach, you see. So we are not afraid. And once I brought a whole house down in Paris, because you know French both hate and love us, uh, depending on the, which side of the bed they got up that day. Uh, and once I said, you know, with, with silicon transplants and, and Viagra, uh, sweeping the US landscape. I said America was in danger of becoming a nation of artificially aroused men chasing artificially <laughs> endowed women. <laughs> and you know, I couldn't go on after that uh, because the whole audience would just kept clapping. They'd never heard such a joke against Americans. <laughs> and all I was saying was that we were using technology all the time and we were not worried about it the way the Europeans are. And you know, so, so I think this is something where we are, when you look at the transatlantic initiative right now, you're going to run into that problem. Because they're still in that mode, we are not. And while some groups are rising over there, which are also worried about Frankenstein foods, this is something that is really um, going to bedevil the discussion of any progress on on transatlantic initiative. And two, it is something of which is, in my opinion, since I don't believe there's any scientific evidence for to be worried about GM foods, no one has ever produced anything convincing, that we also are preventing technological change, which is what the seeds represent, from taking place in the developing countries. Because this is a source of technical change. Just like the earlier Green Revolution of Dr. Borlaug was, and today, this is something which would happen. So we are, if we don't implement change, then you're bound to affect the fortunes of the poor in the developing countries. So I mean, this is a controversial thing, and some of you might want to lynch me afterwards. Uh, but I'll, I'll be gone by that time. Uh, <laughs> and this is where I think, I mean, as I've put it somewhere, we are 
going in for or worrying about a potential Frankenstein who doesn't really exist in my judgment scientifically and actually buying into the Grim Reaper. Because if you don't have technological change in the poor areas, how very will you get the productivity change and the growth and the effect on the poor? And so I've said, you know, so this is what, you know, when I put it that way, people really get mad at me, but this is really the choice before us. And in my opinion, I would include a, a more positive reaction to science, right? Working with it to ameliorate the poor rather than succumbing to fears which are not testified to, which are not justified. Someday they may be justified, but that doesn't mean you don't do it now or, or that you succumb to it now. So these are the kinds of issues which you would come up with. Now on, on the, on Piketty, and I'll just say a few words. What Piketty is saying is that the rich are getting quite rich. So the, what you have there, what you have in terms of the rich is uh, more and more concentration of income and also of wealth in particular. So these are, both of these are contested. I mean, there's one of my colleagues has just written the Journal of Economic Perspectives saying that the wealth data are not as good and you know, we need to, we shouldn't buy into it. But let's buy into it, right? Just for argument's sake that we really want see this rich people multiplying and then getting a larger share and the rest therefore all the rest get less right including the poor maybe we are squeezing the middle class more it's hard to tell in that degree of detail but that is the main thing so now the, the way to look at it in terms of what we do about the poor which is my our objective function right we are with the pope on that so we keep to that and we said, now here is Piketty's observation that there's a lot of riches you know, increasing at the top, okay? So what does that present for us by way of a policy solution? And that's where political economy comes in. Because if you say here is this huge pot of gold, I can expropriate it. I can really catch hold of it, get all that money or part of the money, and then use that to help the poor. So that's the way to link up Mr. Piketty with the Pope, right? Because the Pope's focus is what I buy into, and I think what we ought to buy into. And this is where Piketty is showing that the people are getting richer and richer. Here is the, the pot of gold is increasing in size. If I could only grab it, it's like a child saying, look, if I could only go and find it, you know, right? I mean, uh, here's a larger bunch of marbles and I'm happy and so on and so forth. The problem is, that as soon as you try and do that in democratic systems, you run into problems. And you know, his idea of a 75% tax was adopted at first by Moshe Hollande, a socialist leader of France, which led to immediate <laughs> you know, objections and so on and so forth from within the system. And then what happened was Moshe Hollande gave it up. Now, you've got to address an inquiry to Moshe Hollande to say, why didn't he have the guts to stay on with it? But he didn't. So he gave it up. And the other day, there was a debate at the French consulate uh, between Moshe, Mr. Piketty uh, and uh, Asimoglu of, the, of MIT, who's a well-known development economist. There, I mean, uh, there was no way you could follow Piketty at all in, in, in the way he was talking. But basically he was, the, the most interesting thing was, he
he had turned down the French Legion of Honor, which is a big refusal. Uh, it's like you know, telling Mr. Obama you don't want the National Medal of Science or whatever you know, that he hands out annually. So the French ambassador was sitting next to me. And I said, why, why aren't you sitting next to Piketty? He said, he's insulted France because he turned down this, this honor. Now, <laughs> that's another level at which problems can arise, right? Because your society may disapprove of the <laughs> way you try to do it. But the point is, Mr. Bashir Olan could not pursue the agenda of having a very high tax rate because people would not pay. And those of you who follow French cinema, I'm sorry to refer to another cinema, but how many of you have seen Gerard Depardieu? Gosh, you don't see movies. <laughs> yeah, and so he was attacked by, by you know, uh, for saying that he was going to go to, across to Belgium or something. Uh, he's done more for French cinema than anyone one knows, and there was a beautiful New Yorker article on that. I mean, he's a fantastic guy, and Catherine Deneuve, etc., all jumped to his defense, but he was hounded, saying he'd, you know, he was abandoning France, another traitor, you know, good riddance to bad rubbish, all sorts of things and so on. So he went bananas. <laughs> and then he wound up with Putin accepting, I, I think he accepted Russian nationality of all things. So these are the kinds of things you run into. All I'm saying is it's all very well to say, here is a pot of gold, I can use that. And finally give it to the poor. Well, it's more easily said than done. And this is why I played a lot of emphasis, if you remember, on how at any given tax rate, you can just generate more revenue. You don't have to go and tax people in addition. And in, in the book on, on why growth matters, I even have a, uh, uh, you will be surprised, there's a Beatles song, which is about the tax man cometh. And you should read that. It's, uh, it is like a, it's a Republican song, basically. Because they were being <laughs> also forced to pay huge sums of money to the British exchequer. So they wrote a song. And after all, you know, it's a Beatles song. How can you not sing it, right? And so <laughs> the, the problem is saying here is this money that I can really get it is more easily said than done in democratic societies. So that's one thing. And the other thing, of course, is when you try and send it, spend it on the poor, you have another set of political economy problems. Like if you try and give it through state schemes or state schools and so on, then you run into the problem, basically, that for every dollar that you're spending, 90 cents are going to go off to some intermediary politician. Uh, and whether you call it corruption or otherwise, this is a fact of life. And so how do you optimally manage it? So these are the problems that the Pope also has to <laughs> work with I mean, all of us have to work with. And in countries like India, this is a phase where we are in because you know we now more or less understand how trade openness, etc., helps you. Okay, that is sort of. If anybody quarrels with you on that, just tell them to go back to to school and really read something. But once you've got the revenues, how do you spend them optimally? What should be the size of the classroom? How do you get teachers to come and, and work? How do you get women to, uh, uh, to attend? Like I, I, and I was with the chief minister of my home state, who is a, a school teacher. And she was telling me how to get girls to attend 
uh, was extremely difficult because as soon as they started menstruating, they, they just wouldn't go to school. Uh, or they wouldn't, unless there were separate toilets, they would not go to school. So these are all cultural DNA problems which people are quite aware of. And those are the things which we are working on now. So we are in a new phase in terms of how to do that second blow against poverty, which is how to use resources, how to gather them, how to use them in a way which maximizes our payoff. And that is really the important thing today. So I just want you to leave you with the thought that the political economy, this is really where the action is right now. Uh, and you know, how to get this done. And, and these are not problems like lowering the trade barrier or something, which are political economy problems like you know, lobbies against it and so on and so forth. These are social engineering problems. And we always call them social engineering. But it needs a lot of thinking, experimentation, and so on. And that's where I think you know, the, the real action is, not in just saying, here is this pot of gold, and you know, we can use it. So that's what I want to do. And the final thing I want to say, um, so that we have some time for Q&A, is that you really, um, when you talk of income distribution, um, which we do generally, uh, it matters a lot what we mean by the income distribution. Typically, you will find, oh, 1% is drawing a lot of money. The rest are not. Well, are we comparing ourselves with the, with the 1%? In my own university, the people who are actually go going to the, you know, the Occupy movement people, I won't name them, but you'll immediately know for sure, they are once getting the largest incomes on campus and getting a lot of consulting income. Our own president, I hope I'm not, I, in fact, I hope he's hearing me. Uh, he earns a salary of $2 million and he's a liberal. Should we put up with that? I don't think so. So we, our people compare this. And the same thing is true of economists, and there are many economists here, I'm sure. The sociology people, the English lit people, they look at our salaries because our salaries are determined by what we can get in other places, right? It's the principle of uh, you know, um, paying people <laughs> what they're worth in the marketplace. But who pays sociologists or English lit people? So, so one of the jokes is that in the old days, if you wanted a, a petition signed against um, any cause, you went to the math department. Why? Because in the math department, unless you've succeeded by the age of 18, you're a failure. So there's skillions of people who are failed mathematicians, and they'll sign anything you put before them. <laughs> Today, you don't have to go to the math department. Today, you go to sociology and comparative literature. I mean, and they will sign anything because they're mad as hell at us economists because we are getting too much money, <laughs> and so on. So they're more egalitarian on that. Uh, I'm only half joking, actually. But the point is, you really, ha the main point I'm making is that you refer yourself to the milieu in which you're working. I don't care what Soros is earning or Rubin and so on and so forth, because it doesn't affect me, really in any way. It is just something which people like Piketty make up, okay? If he's happy, so be it. 
right? But nobody cares about it. But go to Colombia and ask them what they think about the president's salary. You will hear things you don't want to hear, right? <laughs> because that is where the action is. And people feel he's getting too much, or these other pro-occupy movement people are getting too much, you know, and then they're writing books on inequality and actually contributing to it, uh, and so on. So, so this is, the point I want to make is that we really have to be careful, uh, we economists, I'm addressing the economists, not to just keep measuring things mechanically. What's happening to one person? What's happening to the fifth decile? We have to see what we want to, you know, what is the political politics and sociology? Then go and measure it, right? And so that is what we don't have at the moment. And people keep measuring this Gini coefficient all the time. Uh, does everybody know what the Gini coefficient is? This is the act, the, the ideal distribution of income is where the household on, at the bottom get an equal amount of income along the diagonal. So it's just a, and the actual distribution is a curved line, okay? So it's the distance between the two. That is really what we are talking about as the Gini coefficient. But if you just think about one moment about it, any number of income distributions are compatible with the same area between, you know, I could draw, I mean, I had another one which is not coming out, but if you look up my growth book, uh, you'll find a, a whole appendix on it. So what do we do with it? But people keep saying, your Gini coefficient is better than mine. And you know, what if, what, it makes no sense because you have to look at the entire distribution, right? And in one case, there might be, you know, lots of poor people getting it. Another case, a lot of rich people might be getting it. And the area might be the same. So the Gini coefficient is very misleading. And then the distribution might have changed for the better from our perspective. It won't be captured necessarily by the Gini coefficient. So in, in one of the, uh, so I say somewhere that we need to put the, the Gini coefficient back into the bottle. I mean, you know, just don't talk like, I'm just look at the entire distribution, see what's going on. Aggregating it into one number is frequently a mistake. It's, it's losing very valuable information uh, in my, and in any case, this must be done for Colombia, for Villanova, etc. if you want, uh, not just the country as a whole, which is meaningless. Who on, and where in a country of, say, India's size, who is looking at the entire income distribution at all? Nobody is, except, you know, the, the, the progressives uh, or radicals or whatever, because they have nothing else to do. Uh, and, you know, because no policy comes from this, in my opinion. And so I think this is one thing I would just urge economists among you to realize, before you start measuring something, think about the politics and the sociology of it. Then come up with a suitable measure. Otherwise, you're going to just be doing mechanistic uh, arguments. So, so I think that is where I would like to, to end, that uh, we are now uh, at the income distribution point uh, where in inequality is still being talked about. But I think we, we need policy options uh, increasingly uh, on how to actually get a better outcome for the poor and, and how we can use the increasing wealth at the top to be able to, to, to assist this particular task. 
I mean, there's nothing obvious that you can say because each country will have its own political economy. Uh, and what you can do in France would be very different from what you can do in, in the United States and so on. So I think that relevance to the context in which you're doing your policy is the main message. And you know, Piketty sort of slightly misses the point actually in, in, in that sense because he's just focusing on the, on the rich period. Uh, and I think this is something where, which is sort of selling it short. Uh, and I think we need to worry about uh, you know, what to do with this. Uh, and another thing, of course, is the, the last point is that they don't, you have to have a model of what is being generated. I take money from you, you are the 1%. So what's going to happen to the economy? I, I, I mean, whatever generated your 1%, your, your, your income, when I take something away from you, is the, the model still continues in place. So you have to have a model to say, what happens if you're de deprived of that one, you know, of that income? Will you still earn some more income? Uh, and two, you've got to also worry about who isn't part of the 1%. And that's the last one. I asked one of my, uh, I, I said, look, uh, Piketty has not even read Thomas Mann. There's no reference to it uh, in, in his. Uh, so I said, Thomas Mann got his Nobel Prize because in the fourth generation, people were coming down. So there was exit from the, from the top, right, downwards. And so I said, you know, Piketty, you know, his l grasp of literature also is very wrong. I mean, he even thinks that, uh, he mentions Jane Austen forgetting that Lizzie Bennet actually, even though she didn't have wealth or status, managed to pull down Mr. Darcy quite a peg, <laughs> right? So what happened to the wealth gap at that point? So he doesn't understand Jane Austen, which I can understand, he's a Frenchman. But then, <laughs> no, I mean, he, he, I'm sure he knows his Balzac very well. But, so I asked my f French colleague, and that's the last point on which I'll end, <laughs> Bernard Salanier. And I said, you know, hasn't he read, Piketty doesn't seem to have read uh, Thomas Mann, which is about exit, you know, down. <laughs> he said, and I, I, I'm, he said, don't use my name, but I'm going to use his name. He's a very famous French economist in our department. But he said, in France, we don't consider German literature to be literature. <laughs> so anyway, that's it. Thank you. I'm sorry, I talked a little too long. Yeah, <coughs> the, um, <coughs> you see, to be able to say that something is going to happen, say, 50 years from now, or even 30 years from now, you have to have an explicit model. 
Now, he's a mathematical economist by training. There's no reason why he shouldn't be able to do that. But he's not, it's not in the book and it's not anywhere. And a lot of people have taken up this point. If you, if you really want to see what happens to income distribution, uh, I mean, a, a good reference point is Paul Samuelson, who actually looked at the issue about the approach of the stationary state and you know, what would happen to, to profits uh, in, in the stationary. Because you remember Marx had raised both questions, the falling rate of profit and also immiseration of the proletariat. These are two separate issues. And I don't think he won on immiseration of the proletariat in terms of, because the proletariat invested in human capital and got away with it <laughs> to some extent. But the, on, the, on the, what happens to the profit rate, there is a, quite a literature now, and I was a bit surprised that uh, he, he just assumed or asserted, I'm picketing, that in the long run, whatever, you know, however you define it, somehow this accumulation would continue. And, and the fact that, I mean, he should really consider, I mean, he, even if the accumulation proceeds, you know, in, in terms of the 1%, if that's a changing composition, it carries far less impact Right? Like if you get in and I get kicked out of it, uh, I'll just have a good time, right? Not worrying about wealth. Because <laughs> having wealth is also a big problem. Like, those, how many of you have jo read John Galsworthy, A Man of Property? You're a happy man as long as you don't have any property. Try and get some property and God help you. Your consumption of Xenex and all sorts of stuff will go up like hell. I mean, that's the famous play of uh, John Galsworth. But that, that gets you into the happiness corner and so on. But the, um, those are issues that he does not really discuss, in my opinion. So I, I think the, I'm not convinced. I mean, I, I still to think more about it, uh, because there are three or four papers which have raised this question also uh, as to what exactly is the model. And as I said, even with the, Without the model, I can't even say what happens if I take away his, you know, his income from within the 1%. Because you have to have a model which generates that, that wealth, right, or that income. And if I don't know what generates it, I mean, how do I know what happens even in the short run? So I think this, this, these are part of the analytical problems that the book raises. And so I think that's what, that's what worries me, you know, that uh, we don't really know what would happen, you know, and, and most people just go at it in terms of whether you can do it or you cannot do it. And that's a political economy question. And there, I think the answer at the moment seems to be not so sanguine. I mean, even if I wanted to do something about the 1%, I, uh, which I'm not sure about. As I said, I wouldn't want to waste my energy on that. The, on, the only other problem, of course, is the political economy problem, which is a different one that the rich may prevent us from doing things for the poor in terms of policies like minimum wages and so on. Or, you know, and I think that's, that's, another, that's another separate way to get at the problem, the political economy problem. But there, I don't think there's anything that I've seen which is very compelling uh, on, on that particular issue. Like, uh, like my colleague Joe Stiglitz often says that uh, the we pr th this concentration prevents us from passing legislation. But I think it's, uh, you know, which is in favor of, uh, say, unionization or, uh, and so on. 
But I prefer Galbraith to, to, who is a much more perceptive man than Joe Stiglitz, because Galbraith told us, reminded us, that you may have wealth and I may have wealth. We are both lobbying, but it's not additive. You may be forced reducing steel imports because you are producing steel. And I may be for increasing steel imports because I'm producing, you know, cars. The two don't add up, they cancel out. And so, and this is, this is Galbraith's main insight, that blobbies matter, but not additively. So everybody doesn't go for the same thing. Then for Stiglitz, et cetera, to say that, you know, we, the more money there is, the more concentrated will be the attack on good policies. I just don't buy that until it's sort of, you know, more, more time is spent on, on demonstrating that. And in my opinion, for what it's worth, I mean, I often say in my after dinner speeches that the company you keep uh, matters more than the company that keeps you. Because the company you keep means the ideas you learn and so on and so forth. Uh, it's the, those things are important. But uh, uh, people buying you, it's, it's, it's a bit vulgar, right? And besides, it cancels out. If you try and buy me, I'll go to him. He'll, he'll give me a better return, right? And so the two of you are not are going to be at loggerheads. This is true of uh, the, the environmental discussion today. Isn't there somebody, I forget his name, who's putting tons of money into, into environment, you know? Uh, and then they're talking about Koch brothers being on the other side. So they, they all tend to cancel out to some extent. I don't see any reason why one lobby should be necessarily more important than another in a game played by lobbies. Uh, and what's going to help us get around that is basically um, the power of ideas. Because that does matter. Ideas do matter. So I think the, that's a third factor which we don't have, you see, uh, in some of these discussions. Okay. Hello. Uh, thanks for coming out to Bill Nova today. Um, I just had a quick question. Um, just to preface it, I'd like to say that I am for legalization, and I'm just asking, just to like see what your perspective would be on it. Legal legalization of what? Legalization of marijuana. Oh, marijuana. Oh. So you, you talked a lot about so, uh, social engineering along with, yeah. I guess, motivation. I hear you say motivation a lot as like the forefront of, you know, like pulling yourself by your own bootstraps and like working. Sure. And so, like, uh, my question to you would be: um, There have been studies that show that I guess, like, well, you know, with a lot of marijuana usage, there could be like a decrease in motivation and such. So, do you believe if, believe if there's any at all, um, an impact would come from like full-blown legalization in America? Oh God. Quick answer: Yes. I can't lose on that. Just yes, yeah? I mean, I, I, I don't know. It depends on, you know, what it's used for and so on, and how far it spreads, so uh, how effective it would be. I'm 80 years old, so maybe I, I should be in favor of medical marijuana. Uh, then I can continue lobbying you in favor of good views. <laughs> but I think it's, right now, it's a bit early to tell which way it will go, I think, you know. If, I mean, it will be fought out in the, in the marketplace for ideas also. Um, but I, I see it moving. There are lots of issues on which the, the countries move. Gay rights and, you know, uh, uh, 
women's rights in the military, all sorts of things. Pe we have moved. And one of the things, well, I, you know, maybe they say first generation immigrants like myself see the great things about America. Our children make up for that by, by becoming regular second generation <laughs> Americans. They see all the, all the bad points about America. But the first generation immigrants are a bit rosy eyed. We have voted with our faith. And so I, it seems to me that uh, while there are lots of problems in America, but they're also often as a result of our generosity. I mean, how many uh, illegal immigrants until this week or, so, or this year have other countries accepted? We, 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 we bark a lot, we, we complain a lot, but we are very kind-hearted people, in my view. And so I and when it comes to jobs, Everywhere you find people worrying about it during times of, you know, unemployment and so on. But on the whole, we are more generous, in my opinion, and so on. And, and the kind of debate we are having on legalization of uh, illegal immigrants, you don't, you're not going to... I don't see that I follow the whole thing in, in, in other countries. So we do have the capacity to change fairly rapidly once we get going. Some things have, didn't change for years and decades and so on. But I think we, I'm astonished at the, because I came here in 1968 and I've seen things happen which really I, you know, I couldn't have imagined, you know, happening. So I, I'm optimistic. I'm, and on my medical marijuana, I think you will again see, already things have moved very fast. And I think it's going to be a zigzag as always. You know, you, you move forward then you, you move a little bit backwards as you discover problems, then you move forward again. So I'm not for just moving straight ahead because these are complex social engineering problems and you have to be course correcting all the time. This is why in a country like India, uh, when, the prime, uh, when the government moves slowly, uh, I'm more sympathetic because I would like to see them move in the right direction, but I can't double guess their politics because they're going to have to make sure that they clear the political minefields and you know, get us moving in the right direction. And the maximum speed is not the optimal speed. And you know, so, so some people think the faster you go, the better. Uh, but that suggests that you're a dictator and can do whatever you want. But it, that's not how things work out. So, so it's a long answer to a short question, but I think, uh, but I, I think, uh, I would be optimistic about this country on, on, on virtually every dimension. And I think even on how to handle, you know, like the Europeans are doing right now, how to handle uh, refugee flows. We've done much more than on that also. And now the Europeans are just catching up. After all, the world is catching up with them. They're getting the kinds of flows, refugee flows. And, uh, and I think we ought to play a major role in advising them on how to handle it. I mean, like. Some of us have discussed over the years how some countries are able to take in more people, but then they're not able to finance the flow. So, so maybe combination of contributions by of space and of uh, ability to accommodate, along with money from you know to do it, would be the good thing. Like when Bangladesh was created. 10 million refugees came across the border to India, and India was uh, practically busted. I mean, we took them in, but then that's the time when we could, I mean, so we were willing to give the space, right? Same thing for Dalai Lama in Tibet and so on. But it does cost a lot of money. 
uh, which is what the Italians are complaining about now. So we need to have a policy where everybody can do what they can and to pull it together and so on. So I, I, you know, I wrote about it about 10 years ago. But in, you know, it's not immigration problem, it's a refugee problem. And I think we need to worry about things like that. But this country, of all countries, I think is willing to, to push ahead, push the frontier on a variety of things, in my opinion. So I'm optimistic. Okay? Good. Thank you very much.